0: Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendrick Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic on The Table today is the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they relate to the Bible. I have two expert guests joining me today. First guest is Craig Evans, who's a Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. Welcome.
1: Hey, good to be with you. Happy to see all of you. Look forward to our discussion.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Um, second guest coming to us also via Zoom is Dr. Daryl Bach, No Stranger to the Table podcast. Daryl is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament here at Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Daryl.
2: Good to see you, Mikael. You're We're a little further separated than we normally are. We're just a couple of offices from one another normally <clears throat>
0: Yeah, well, we're going to dive right in uh, to our conversation, and Craig, just uh, to to set the stage for our conversation, for somebody who has no idea what on earth the Dead Sea Scrolls even are, uh, how would you explain to them what we mean by the Dead Sea Scrolls?
1: I think the easiest way is to say, look, it's an ancient library. (laughs) It's a Jewish library, it dates back uh, 2000, just over 2000 years. Uh, The range of the books would be about 300 years from, uh, say, the early decades of the first century A.D. to all the way back close to 300 B.C. Most of these books, and we call them scrolls because that's how the books were. They were just rolled up leather. And uh, most of these books would date somewhere around 50 B.C. to 100 B.C., give or take. And so we call them the Dead Sea Scrolls because they're scrolls and they're found in caves mostly near Qumran which is right on the edge, the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, and that's where they get the name. The scrolls were not found in the Dead Sea. <laughs> they were found near the Dead Sea, and so they're 2,000 plus years old. They're Jewish, and therefore they, they contain, as you would expect, most of the books of what we call the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. They contain commentaries and a lot of other writings of interpretation, speculation, prophecy, visions of the future, and a lot of legal text, too, about how you fulfill the law, keep yourself pure, etc., etc. So it's a library that sheds light on both Judaism and Christianity, and that's why both Jews and Christians are keen to study the scrolls. Obviously, the scrolls shed a lot of light on the Hebrew Bible itself, the text mm-hmm. of the Old Testament. So that's what it is in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Those are the Dead Sea Scrolls.
0: So all the books of the Old Testament no Esther, is that correct?
1: That's right. As far as we know, there's no Esther. Uh, It's still kind of the jury's out on Nehemiah. Hmm. Uh, and that's because the Nehemiah fragment that came to light, we're not really sure if it came from Qumran, and actually we're not even sure it's genuine. Uh, it's been embarrassing, The you know, scrolls that came to light in the last 15 to 20 years. Many of them are forgeries, as it turns out, and that's embarrassed some schools and collectors who purchased them. The leather is ancient, but the writing uh, is only 20 years old.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell us briefly the story about how the, some of the first scrolls were discovered.
1: Well, the the story goes, the official version, and you have to put a, a bit of a grain of salt with mm. it. But the version that circulates is sometime in the spring of 1947 um a cave one was found and we call it cave one Simp because it was the first cave that was found and it's not actually at Qumran; it's a little bit north and uh and so anyway the story goes whether it's chasing down a goat or whatever it is throwing a rock whatever really happened somebody went inside this cave and it was not easy to get into which is why it wasn't found long time ago you had to hoist yourself up there's a hole now that's lower for us old guys to get in but he got inside and found some jars and hoped to find valuables and of course he did not the kind of valuables he wanted he found some old leather rolls and he brought some of them back uh, and antiquities people saw them got interested in them and that's how the cave was found and so in uh november of 47 uh a jewish scholar uh Saw saw them and recognized them as ancient, wanted to get them. Of course, Jerusalem was divided in those days. There was the Green Line, Palestinian side, Jewish line, Jewish side. And then in February of 1948, uh, some of these scrolls were taken to uh, the uh, uh, schools of oriental research where uh, John Trevor was staying along with Bill Brownlee both of them my professors years later hmm. at, uh, at Claremont, and uh, they recognized them as ancient. They, they identified correctly the script as Herodian. And so uh, John Trevor, who happened to be an excellent photographer, complete with camera, tripod, lots of film, he was going to film other things. That's why he was there. And he took photographs of four of the scrolls and of course, then the hunt was on and more caves were found and, and um, 11 caves in all, including a 12th, not that long ago. And the 11 caves produced somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,000 writings. We're not sure because many of them are in fragments and it's hard to tell when you have a pile of fragments. Are you looking at one document or five documents? You just don't know. So anyway, that's what we have. And hmm. uh, it's the greatest find relating to the Bible ever made.
0: Hmm. Wow. Is it true that John Trevor actually took the great Isaiah scroll back to the hotel and like put it on the bed and photographed yeah, it? Yeah,
1: he did. I got even more to tell you. He not only took it back to the room where he was staying, took a photograph. I have the photograph, but um, uh, Bill Brownlee got permission to take the great Isaiah scroll home with him that summer, oh, summer wow. 48, and he used it in teaching Hebrew at Duke. He was a brand new appointee. Uh, young assistant professor at Duke in 1948, he was 31 years old, and so some of his Hebrew students actually had the Great Isaiah Scroll in class. Wow. He, of course, it was sent back, and they don't. Uh, just to let you know, Darrell, listen up. You can't do that now. <laughs> you know they, they don't. They don't check it out. But, uh, uh,
2: I, I, my classes will be very disappointed to hear that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm sorry. Sorry to break the news to you. But one of the really interesting things was when Bill came back in, in the summer of 48, and he's at Duke, he didn't have a car. He wasn't married to Louise yet. He didn't even have a place to stay. He stayed on campus in a dorm. And one of the grad students there, <coughs> uh, uh, Emmanuel Gitlin, a Jewish Christian later uh, ordained as a Lutheran minister, passed away, by the way, just a few years ago in his mid-90s. Well, anyway, he was a grad student several years younger than Bill. He was there and he had a car. And Bill said, I'm getting asked to speak at schools and uh, at um, churches, because I've got this Isaiah scroll and this new find. And he said, well, I'll drive you around. And so here they are driving around in this car, And in a shoebox, the Great Isaiah Scroll, in the trunk of the car. Can you imagine that? (laughs) And um, anyway, I'm telling this story. Oh, this is about uh, 25 years ago. I was at in North Carolina. I was at Wake Forest. And there was this conference on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm standing up there telling this story about this guy driving around, Bill Brownlee and his precious Isaiah Scroll. And an elderly gentleman jumped up in my talk and said, that's me. I'm Emanuel Gitlin. I'm the guy who was driving around. And we had lunch together. Uh, Emanuel didn't even know Bill had passed away many years ago. And uh, I got a photograph of him. We talked. I thought, this this brings closure. (laughs) (laughs) So I did my PhD under Bill Brownlee. And then I met his chauffeur uh, years later, but that was really a fun experience.
0: Wow. Well, it's so cool to have, uh, to have you on the show because of, not only because of your, your academic work, but also your personal connection to uh, the research on the Dead Sea Scrolls. But, Daryl, let's go back to the person who has no idea what on earth the Dead Sea Scrolls are, and they just heard Craig's explanation. He alluded to this a little bit, but how would you, in a nutshell, explain to someone why the Dead Sea Scrolls matter to studying the Bible?
2: Well, I'm going to get up for a second because I want to show you something. Um, here are two volumes of the Dead Sea Scrolls in uh, in parallel lines. So you've got the English text on one side, the translation, and then uh, representations of what the text mm-hmm. looked like on the other. I don't know if you can see that very well. But these are uh, – so I, I just want people to have a sense of – how many texts are actually talking about here? Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't like a little bitty book. And these are two volumes. It says text concerning religious law, exegetical texts, parabiblical texts, calendrical texts. Calendars were a big deal at the Dead Sea Scroll community. Uh, sapiential texts, which is just a fancy way to talk about wisdom, poetic and liturgical texts, additional genres, and unclassified texts. So this is a, there's a lot of stuff here, and it took a long time. For people to appreciate uh what was going on for a variety of reasons these texts are important because they set a, a religious context for um the for second temple judaism in the time of jesus and uh you know the community existed um so from the middle of the second century uh, BC all the way into um, up through the war with Rome uh, that led to the fall of Jerusalem and then eventually the fall of uh, of everything um, in in Israel uh, extended to 70 70. Who well, From 67 to 73, if you want to be real specific. Of course, Jerusalem fell in 70, um, and and it because it's a library that represents all kinds of works out of Judaism, you all of a sudden gained a fuller religious context for Second Temple uh, thinking, theological thinking in the period. Granted, it's through the eyes of a a separatist sect of some kind, but um, the amount of information that it gave us about uh, Second Temple Jewish thinking in this period literally, it didn't just revolutionize our understanding of, of the region and Second Temple Judaism, it also revolutionized the way we think about certain aspects of the New Testament because all of a sudden the Jewish backdrop to much of the New Testament, which people understood but perhaps didn't entirely appreciate, became more um, became clearer as a result of the finds and and the overlaps that people saw between the texts and the New Testament. Craig, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that summary.
1: That's a very good summary. Uh, You hit the nail right on the head. Um, You know, we had precious little information. Uh, You go back to the 1940s, we just didn't have a lot of direct information uh you know, from that period of time, and then it, it just multiplied it. So the scrolls came along and shed light on all kinds of things. It represents, as you, you know, you read that table of contents, that was very helpful. You had all these different kinds of genres. Not all of it is sectarian at Qumran. It isn't just all stuff they wrote, but uh, <clears throat> copies of documents that we already knew about. Uh, and of course now we had Enoch, for example, in Aramaic instead of in Greek translation and Ethiopic translation. So Qumran was just a bonanza to help us understand better uh, the kinds of literature available, the kinds of events that were going on at a crucial time, a very Mm -hmm. crucial time for Christianity.
0: So it helps us uh, understand more about uh, life and culture and history and beliefs, things that were being discussed uh, before the time of the New Testament, during the New Testament time, and even some after the New Testament time as well. Now,
2: the use of terminology as well. mm -hmm. I mean, there the the way in which the Bible was read, the hermeneutics with which it was read. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's hardly an area of of biblical study that uh, the scrolls don't touch in one way or another.
0: Mm-hmm. So a bonanza, as Craig said, uh, very exciting for uh, not only uh, archaeology, but also in New Testament studies and biblical studies in general. But Craig, let's talk about the discovery in March 2021, uh, where there were dozens of Dead Sea Scroll fragments that were found recently. What exactly did they find?
1: Well, this very recent find, uh, I need to... I, maybe I should have said that at the very beginning when I'm talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls most scholars when they talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls they talk about the ones at Qumran and nearby caves that are connected to Qumran and so it's 990 or whatever the total number I don't think we will ever know how many uh, manuscripts actually were recovered but uh, <clears throat> there were other caves further south at Murabaat and at Hever. and so the most important ones from our point of view are scrolls that date to the Bar Kokhba Era, and these are sc- scrolls that would be at the beginning of the second century. Bar Kokhba fought his rebellion 132 to 135, ended in defeat. Bar Kokhba was his nickname, son of the star. The man's real name was Simon ben Kosaba. There were people who fled, hid in these caves further south at Nahal Hever. Now these, the, you know, these make the Qumran caves look like a walk in the park. These things are cliffs, and mm-hmm. they're hard to get into, and Yigal Yadin in, investigated most of this uh, in the 60s. Uh, it's been reinvestigated uh, uh, 10 years ago, and part of Operation Scroll, which has been a, an effort to systematically look at every single cave in the area on the idea that maybe some of them have things in them and we want to check them out before politically we lose control of this area or looters or whatever, whatever. Uh, so these c- caves in and around Nahal Hever have been looked at again, and in this most recent effort, uh, more scroll fragments, or not scroll fragments, really uh, ancient Greek fragments have come to light, and we had from Nahal Hever uh, a Greek Minor Prophets uh, scroll that was published 30 years ago by Emmanuel Tove. Well, what what they have found in what's called the Cave of Horror, where skeletons were found years ago, uh, are fragments of Greek Zechariah and Nahum. And so what do you know? And I think what this tells us is, you know what? It's worth looking in these caves. I've had people say, well, what's the big deal? Just go in and look at all the caves, you know, with a flashlight, you know, and take a look. <laughs> but what you don't know is these caves are ha- a lot of times they're halfway filled up with debris, dust, bat dung, guano, you know, and so on. And you're crawling around. So it's not easy. You don't just walk in like an empty room with a flashlight and say, oh, there's nothing here. You really have to excavate it. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of work. Work. And that's how they found cave 12, you know, four years ago. They found some leather fragments, no text, but they found scroll jars and so on. That's related to Qumran. But this cave, miles south, is not. It's related to the Bar Kokhba era. And so we have more uh, fragments in uh, Greek of these two minor prophets that I mentioned. The big takeaway for me is, you know, you got Greek translation, and yet you come to the divine name, and instead of writing it out as kurios, which would be usually what they do in Greek, or even trying to sound it out with Greek letters so it sounds like Yahweh, it actually has Hebrew, the tetragrammaton written in Hebrew, Yahweh. And I think, well, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. switches back into the Hebrew language.
2: You know, the interesting thing about this is, uh, and just to give people a geographical feel, think of the Dead Sea, which is shaped like an oval. Um, Qumran is probably about at 10 or 10.30 uh, on the on your dial. Uh, and these caves are uh, more than 10 miles to the south. Um, and and so, I don't know, 9, 8.30, something like that, if you're thinking about an oval that's like a, a watch dial. Um, and what it shows is how um, how dispersed remains are in the area, which is which helps to make sense of why they are searching literally all every open space they can get into uh, for this material. Uh, and the fact you know it, it's a little bit like oh I found another one, so that means I better keep looking. Uh, that's kind of the feel of, of what this is represented.
0: Mm-hmm. Now that's really interesting detail to to note about the divine name. Does that help us date the scrolls at all?
1: Well, uh, I'm not a paleographer. I suppose it could, but I think given the uh, location. Uh, And uh, given the fact that it's written in Greek, they can look at the Greek text, not so much the divine name, but the Greek text and see if it matches. I'm assuming they've done that. I've looked at some of the images. They do seem to be the same style of Greek that we found uh, in the second century in the same caves. So I'm guessing it probably is a late first, early second century copy of Zechariah and Nahum.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you talked earlier about um, looters. You mentioned uh, looters going into the caves. And I've seen pictures of people rappelling down in and heard about <laughs> drones being used. And so yeah. it's, it's really uh, more involved than most people think. Um, how, how much of a concern are looters with the caves being so inaccessible?
1: Well, the more inaccessible, the better. In a sense, uh, it would be a very dangerous thing for looters to try to get into these caves. They would have to be convinced that there's va- there are valuables in them. They're not looters aren't interested in work. They're interested in going in and quickly finding something that's easy to find. They might have a metal detector with them or whatever. And so, a lot of these caves, it's just plain hard work. But I'll tell you, you could kill yourself if you fell off of one of these cliffs. And uh, I. I lecture on archaeology also and the dangers there thereof and this is very similar to that uh, people die You know, so this is not just, you know, it's a little bit of an Indiana Jones thing. Mm -hmm. But people have fallen to their deaths by dropping into holes. People have been killed by cave-ins. So this isn't the thing that you just do on a lark, you know. Uh, You need to know what you're doing. And looters normally, they go after things that are are easy to do, easy to find. And, uh, of course, forgery has been the main thing. For the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's not looting, really, it's forgery. People get a hold of leather that's ancient, and then it's not hard to imitate the Herodian script. So if you have a piece of leather about that size, you just put it over uh, a real text and get a sense of, aha, that's the text that I can now copy here. It's already been scored. So you already have the lines impressed in Hmm. the Hebrew, and Hebrew hangs from the text, English sits on the text or on the lines. So you hang your letters uh, on your score, and you can make it look really good. And a lot of these fakes, uh, you know, they they fooled people out of millions of dollars. Hmm. And I one of my own students is, is one, it's, it's uh, Kip Davis, Christopher Davis. He's the one that blew the whistle a few years ago in articles that appeared in Dead Sea Discoveries. He looked at them under the microscope and he realized, oh, there's a problem here. The ink was jumping, uh, the cracks in the leather, jumping hmm. like a bridge. When You, you can see that in the microscope. Hmm. Uh, the ink was going undamaged over abraded, roughed up portions of leather. The ink wasn't damaged. And then the real tell, uh, uh, telltale sign was rock salt is still pressed in against the ink. And that's what uses, is used to make the ink look old and mm. uh, kind of dusty, the way ancient ink would look. So, you know, I think that's the real problem. You know, you get people looting these caves. They find some leather. And next thing you know, you get some fakes, and, and somebody naively pays a half million dollars wow. uh, for for some pieces of leather.
0: Wow. Well, Daryl, you mentioned earlier the uh, the relevance of these scrolls to the New Testament and uh, beliefs that were circulating around the time of Jesus, especially. Tell us a little bit about the kind of messianic expectation that we see leading up to the time of Jesus and during the time of Jesus that we've got from the scrolls.
2: Well, it's interesting. We've got a variety of things going on. Uh, there's at least one scroll that talks about uh, two messiahs, uh, one a priestly messiah, the other a regal messiah. It's important to appreciate the fact that when this. many people think the founding of this community was a reaction to the Hasmoneans holding both um, priestly and kinship responsibilities. They just fought the Maccabean War in, in an attempt to defend um, the trustworthiness and integrity of the Jewish faith, which had a priestly line and a king line, and now all of a sudden you get someone who puts kingship and priests together, mm-hmm. even though it was designed to be temporary, um, and the reaction is that's not biblical, that's not what we fought to defend, and so there's a reaction, at least that's one of the explanations for the founding of the community. Um, so there's a two-line, uh, two-messiah, two model that we see in some of the texts. The other texts are full of passages that we also see in the New Testament applied uh, messianically. Um, very famous text called Florilegium um, has references to 2 Samuel uh, 7. It has references to Amos 9. I mean, they're they're it, you you read this and you go they must they must have read the New Testament before the New Testament was written, which is exactly what was going on. And so um, so so there is this messianic expectation that exists. There's been some debate about whether there are some messianic texts that have uh, suffering attached to them. That's probably less than likely um, in terms of the location, but that has been at least presented at times as, as one aspect of the messianic expectation at Qumran. And, and remember, it's a library. So you're not just dealing with the view of the people who took care of the scrolls and that kind of thing. They're actually collecting uh, Jewish texts of all sorts as a part of that library.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like,
2: If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican.
3: Huh, that raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard.
0: Craig, you have anything to add to that in terms of uh, things that Jesus said or referred to that are uh, illuminated by these scrolls?
1: Yeah, there there is one tremendous example. It's probably the most important example that relates directly to one of Jesus' teaching John the Baptist is in prison. He's discouraged. He sends messengers to Jesus. You have the story in in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. The question put to Jesus from John is, Are you he who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus then responds by saying, We'll go back and tell John what you're hearing about and seeing and everything. The blind regain their sight. Lepers are cleansed. Dead are raised up. The poor have good news. Preach to them. And uh, what happened was, was a text, a fragmentary text, has a chunk of it, and it's 4Q. So that means it's Qumran K4, document 521. Mm-hmm. Some call it the Messianic Apocalypse. And it reads very similarly. Now, what's really interesting about it is Matthew, as Matthew, as the evangelist, He introduces this exchange between John and Jesus as, when John was in prison, heard about the works of the Messiah. That's what he adds to the text. Luke doesn't do this. This is Matthew, his own editorial way of introducing it. And there were skeptics and critics that cried foul and said, this is Matthew trying to bump up this exchange between jesus and john and turn it into a messianic thing blah 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 okay well we get this 4q 521 text published about 30 years ago now and uh it it starts off by saying heaven and earth will obey his messiah and then everything in, in you know everything in them you know the holy ones will be respected and so on and it goes on and gives these parallels about the blind regaining their sight and the poor having good news preached to them, the wounded being healed, and so on. And so guess what? These parallels, these things that Jesus mentioned would that are happening that give proof that he really is the one who is to come, mm-hmm. and John should have assurance and know that, according to 4Q521, that happens when the Messiah shows up. So what this shows is not only do we have a parallel with Jesus, Matthew knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. He rightly recognized the messianic significance of both the question and the answer. And so I think that's a tremendous example of it. And of course, it gets even deeper because Jesus' reply, you can say every single one of these phrases comes out of Isaiah. And so there are two or three places in Isaiah, and you say, oh, this is what Jesus is doing. But the 4Q520, uh, 4Q521 passage mm-hmm. not only alludes to these Isaiah passages, but the way it begins comes right out of Psalm 146, mm. verses 6 through 8. And these are the things Yahweh does. Mm. He opens the eyes of the blind. He's the one that created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He does all this stuff. And what gets really interesting is, is that with that in mind, the, the answer that Jesus gives is basically saying, I'm doing Yahweh's things. I'm doing the things that the Lord does. And so you get a, a very high Christology potential in the backdrop mm-hmm. when you go to 4Q521. It actually bumps The Christology high. You think, well, it's Christianity that does that. It's the New Testament that bumps Messianism up. Well, man, that is pretty high. Mm -hmm. And so when the Messiah comes, according to 4Q521, heaven and earth obeys him. Hmm. I mean, you know, that's really saying Hmm. something. Yeah. And that becomes, in my view, the backdrop to like when Jesus stills the storm or he walks on water and the disciples are thunderstruck and say, who then is this that even the wind and the waves Mm -hmm. obey him? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's this (laughs) Messiah figure whom heaven and earth will base. That's who it is. And so Qumran in this sense sheds light directly on a passage where Jesus replies to John but also fills in an important element of backdrop on how the anointed one of the Lord in a sense acts as God himself which that tells you something about the uh, uh, openness at Qumran to a very high Christology. Now by the way, we don't Think Qumran composed 4Q521, but it's not likely they would have a book in their library that they disagreed with, or they Mm -hmm. wouldn't have it. Hmm. Yeah, that passage
2: is interesting for a whole series of reasons. Um, It, it, you know, when John is asking Jesus basically to validate himself, um, he doesn't do it with a claim uh, of something that you can't look at and see. He does it with these eschatological acts out of the language of Isaiah. All those passages in Isaiah come in context in which um, the deliverance of God is being described and how it's going to impact the people. There's no Old Testament example of a blind person being given sight. So you've got that element of the equation. So even the things that are listed are unusual. Some of the others have precedent, you know, in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so there's just a lot going on with that passage Christologically. Another important fact that we see um, confirmed at, at Qumran is the way the... Um, the sect described itself in terms of a community waiting in the desert for the deliverance of the Lord through Isaiah, the imagery of Isaiah 40, which of course gets applied in the New Testament to the ministry of John the Baptist as a preparation for Jesus. There, there are all kinds of overlaps like this. I said I mentioned earlier the hermeneutical overlap, what we call Pesher interpretation. This is that interpretation, which we see in a text like Acts 2. Uh, we also see examples of at Qumran. So there are just lots of touch points here with the way in which um, things are being summarized. Everyone's wrestling with, how do you put the hope of the Old Testament together? How do you put the hope of the Hebrew Scriptures together? And this gives us a glimpse of how one group and then the writings associated with um, the Judaism at the time attempted to do this in a variety of ways, mm-hmm. and thus... Uh, Thus, the Dead Sea Scrolls become a fascinating, not just bonanza, but literally a a mall of interpretations Mm -hmm. and ways of putting the scriptures together that Judaism is wrestling with as it's trying to sort out, all right, what is God going to do one day?
0: Mm -hmm. Daryl, how much of this would have been in the background of of people's minds when they heard uh, Jesus read out of Isaiah and Luke 4, for example? Uh, did they know that there was more than just Isaiah that had that those ideas in it as well?
2: Uh, I think in some cases that would be the case. Um, you know, the more the more theologically oriented certain people were, they certainly engaged in these kinds of speculations, that kind of thing. I think it'd be hard to say that, you know, everybody walking around in Judea at the time had these ideas, but there's no doubt there was a you know, this is a period starting from really of um, uh, six uh, AD on uh, of high messianic expectation, the hope of deliverance in one way or another. Two very concentrated periods: one when Rome began to impose taxation on the land, and then as the uh, events that led to the war between Rome and and Israel and, that culminated in the fall of Jerusalem, of AD seventy. And those two, Two periods, there were very intense uh, Messianic expectations, and so people would have been hoping for and longing for uh, the deliverance of God to be rescued. The anticipation was they would be rescued from this Roman presence in the Holy Land, and uh, uh, that's what they were longing for, and you even see hints of that in the way the disciples are reacting to Jesus. In fact, John's question in the passage that Craig mentioned is probably triggered by the fact that Jesus isn't quite the kind of Messiah that John was anticipating uh, him being because uh, he he, he had preached that the axe is laying at the root of the tree as if judgment's right around the corner. And Jesus didn't seem to be bringing that kind of anticipated uh, judgment in the way in which he was ministering. So it raised the question, are you the one to come or should we expect another?
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Craig, you've also talked about uh, a connection between Melchizedek and uh, the forgiveness of sins in connection with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Could you explain that to us?
1: Well, there's another text at Qumran. It's from Cave 11. It's number 13. It's also called the Melchizedek text. It's fascinating. We don't know how big it was originally. We have three columns. Columns 1 and 3 are in very poor condition. But column 2 we can reconstruct. It's about 14, 15 pieces. It's pretty well put back together. It begins with a quotation of Leviticus 25.13, which is the law of Jubilee, where everybody's debts are forgiven. And as you know, the Aramaic word for debt is the same as sin, and this plays into the idea that your sins against God are like, well, like debts, right? And so this gets eschatologized, and it gets lumped with the very passage that uh, Daryl just mentioned, Isaiah 61, it's part of Jesus' preaching uh, at Nazareth, described in more detail in Luke 4 than, than in the parallel at Mark 6. And so these two passages come together the Jubilee of Leviticus 25 and the promise of healing and restoration and so on through the Lord's anointed in Isaiah 61. And so we have commentary on that, and so it's beautiful. It sheds light on the backdrop for Jesus' preaching at Luke uh, in Luke 4. But what's really mysterious about it, <clears throat> it goes on to talk about this Melchizedek figure, and of course we all know who that is, Genesis 14, Psalm 110. But the idea that he's an eschatological figure in some way represents God, defeats Satan, forgives sin, Heals people. It's like, wait a minute. This this is beginning to sound familiar. Mm. And then the the breathtaking one for me is at one place in column two. It alludes to as Jesus did. Remember, he quotes part of Isaiah sixty one t- two as to, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the the year of Yahweh's favor, as the Hebrew text actually says. And that gets quoted in his sermon. Well, it gets quoted in the Melchizedek scroll only it's <clears throat> the year of Melchizedek's favor hmm. and and to me that's just mind blowing so Melchizedek is inserted now th- you know these are These uh, guys at Qumran are pretty conservative, and they have the highest, uh, loftiest views of God. They're not going to play fast and loose with the divine name. And I find that just extraordinary. So the year of the Lord's favor is also the year of Melchizedek's favor in some sense. Melchizedek represents the Lord, and so now it's no surprise at all the author of Hebrews runs with the Melchizedek image and uses it to develop a very high Christology in his work. Well, that's no surprise. Look how high the Christology is in this Melchizedek document.
2: Hmm, hmm. So one of the things that this illustration points out is, is what a point we were making very early on, which is you come to understand the Jewish background, and what I call the cultural scripts that are Mm -hmm. in in the New Testament that the Dead Sea Scroll illuminates. And all of a sudden, what seem to be rather mundane claims or could be cast as rather mundane claims actually end up being very exalted claims in Gospels that traditionally have been associated as having a lower Christology than John, and John's Gospel. All of a sudden, the background of these texts... Where, where you get these associations between God and this figure to be sent, the exalted nature of that uh, shows that some of the Christology that looks rather innocent, or at least doesn't have a lot to say, ends up having a lot more to say than we realize, and these texts help to show that sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Craig, do you have any examples of uh, Dead Sea Scroll material that help us understand Paul or his work?
1: I do. There are several. There are a number of places in the Seric Scroll that talks about the organization of the community, and we realize Paul uses some of that very language in talking about the church, and like an overseer, or a teacher, or referring literally in the Greek text. The the uh, the many, which usually gets translated as the majority or something like that, and Qumran uses the same language. And what that shows is this is not some distinctive ecclesiastical language that the church developed. It's just the language. In fact, the idea that the church of God, you know, the Ecclesia to well, you have Kahal El, uh, assembly of God, or or something like that, in Qumran. But the one that's for me a, a real I mean, it's just tremendous how it solves problems, is the, the Halakhic letter. There are six copies of it. It's fragmentary, but because we have six copies of the same document, we can combine them, collate them, and create almost a, almost 100% of the original text. And it's also called 4QMMT, mm-hmm. and the MMT stands for Miksat Ma'eseh HaTorah, the key phrase, some of the works of the law. Now, the beauty of this is, for the first time, we have outside of Paul and before Paul that expression, works of the law, that clears everything up. And if you remember in Galatians, Paul is furious at Peter because he stopped eating with Gentiles, Gentile Christians, because men from James had come down from Jerusalem. And so there's something about food, and there's something about works of law, somehow that's connected. And then we have the problem, with the book of James, where he talks about how your faith is dead if there aren't any works. And this, you know, this created a nightmare for Martin Luther. Well, 4QMMT single-handedly resolves all these problems. And so it talks about works of law, and we have trouble counting them. We're not certain if it's 20 or 22 or however many. But along the way, two or three of them express concerns about impurity from Gentiles. You do not take grain from Gentiles and mix it with pure food. And then we realize, oh, this is an elaboration and enhancement of strict Jewish views that you stay away from non-kosher your food. You stay away from Gentiles. You don't even eat in their presence. And so 4 q MMT is saying that this is one of the works of the law. Then it goes on to say that if you do these works of the law, it will be reckoned to you as righteous, righteousness, and it'll turn out for you well in the end time. Well, we realize, okay, the the authors of 4QMMT are clearly on the other side of the issue Mm -hmm. compared to Paul. Mm -hmm. And so when Paul speaks of works of the law, he is talking about the quest for purity. In this particular case, avoiding impure food, Gentile food, don't eat with Gentiles. So 4QMMT makes that crystal clear what the debate is and why Paul so sharply disagrees with Peter. At the same time, it helps us understand better that uh, James is not talking about that. James in James two, when he speaks of works, he's talking about living up to Mm -hmm. the command to love your neighbors yourself and more than lip service. Mm -hmm. And so if your faith does not translate into any kind of mercy, charity, or love, it's a dead faith. And so that kind of faith will not save. Mm -hmm. Well, Paul wouldn't have any problem with that, but Paul in Galatians two, and in, chapter 3, and also in Romans when he speaks of works of law and then links it to Genesis 15.6 about how Abraham believed God and he was regarded righteous because of that. He's talking about the quest for purity, in this case specifically also uh, food. But one other little footnote In 4QMMT, when it talks about being reckoned righteous, if you actually look at the Hebrew, the the reckoned or regarded or reckoned is in a certain form that doesn't actually match Genesis 15.6. It matches the only one other place in the Hebrew Bible where that verb occurs, and it's Psalm 106, verses 30 to 31, in reference to the zealous priest Phineas, who pinned those people to the wall, remember, hmm. in the camp in the wilderness because of their sin, mixing with uh, impurity with Gentiles and idols and so on. And so from Qumran's point of view, he's the template. You want to be reckoned righteous? You better be very zealous for the law. For Paul, of course, no, that's not the template. It's Abraham. He had faith in God. That becomes our template. That's how you're reckoned righteous. So for 4QMMT just helps us in a lot of ways. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: And again, this also illuminates, and I've got to come to Luke and Luke acts because I just want to make sure he gets time uh, in the New Testament. Uh, This also illuminates the pressure that Peter was feeling for sitting down and eating a meal with Gentiles right after uh, Gentiles had first received the gospel. This would have been um, shocking to a law-abiding Jew that he would do this. And and the background of these kinds of texts shows kind of what was at stake because a very deep part of Jewish faithfulness and identity is tied up in this action in the view of a faithful Jew who says no kosher no non kosher food and don't eat with Gentiles.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of sensationalized news that comes about. You know, when the new find came out, people. We're advertising it as a new Bible was discovered, you know. Uh, <laughs> but far from something that undercuts the Bible, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls actually illuminates things for us that we would never know um, if we didn't because we didn't live back then. Um, so these things actually help us um, understand the Bible. Um, Daryl, is there anything else that we need to say about the Dead Sea Scrolls connection to Jesus and the New Testament before we sign off?
2: Um. I mean, there probably is, but I don't know if I have time for it. I <laughs> feel like the ending of Gospel of John. You know, you could write endlessly. In fact, people have written yes. endlessly about the impact of the Dead Sea Scrolls, not just on Jesus' teaching and ministry, but really running through several, uh, several portions of the New Testament. We're still studying and learning stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is that as you put the Dead Sea Scrolls in the context of other texts associated with Second Temple Judaism, not a part of Qumran, um, you know, and you begin to see a consistency with which certain things are used, all of a sudden you get you do get additional angles on what's going on in certain New Testament passages, mm-hmm. and that's what makes the study of the New Testament rich when you put it in its ring.
0: Yeah. Craig, with just a, about a minute left, I'll uh, give you the last word. What should a Christian know and keep in the back of their mind as they see uh, sometimes these sensationalized kinds of uh, reports about the Dead Sea Scrolls?
1: Well, they need to know that the scrolls are a good thing. It's all good news. And it's, they shouldn't be put off because crackpots and sensationalists <laughs> make claims that th- that are irresponsible. Uh, I've, I've given many talks on the scrolls. I've had people uh, who are Christians in the audience say why 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 are you talking about the scrolls I understand they embarrass Christianity they say things about Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene or something like that and this is the damage that that kind of irresponsible stuff does and so guys like me and Daryl you know all of us we need to weigh in and say hold on a minute The scrolls don't talk about that stuff. The scrolls are a good thing, and they really help us understand Scripture better, help us understand Jesus better. There's nothing in the scrolls that embarrasses uh, Christianity or the Church.
2: Yeah, the issue of Jesus' wife is another example of a non-Qumran fraudulent text Mm -hmm. that was put forward, and to create a sensational splash that had no connection to reality in terms of Jesus
0: at all that's true that's a very interesting story and our our viewers and listeners can look that one up that's a fascinating story on the uh, supposed gospel of Jesus wife fragment well thank you so much Daryl for being on the show with us
2: my pleasure
0: thank you Craig for joining us my pleasure. And we thank you so much for joining us here on The Table as well. Uh, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us there. Uh, leaving a review really does help people uh, discover our show, so if you like the content, please uh, leave a review and share it with others. I'm Michael Del Rosario, and I hope that you will join us again next time on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach
2: truth, love well.